A greeting of peace in the name of our risen Lord and Savior. It's a blessing to be here this evening. It's life is a gift. It's a it's it's a gift to be able to be here. About a half a year ago, I had the doctor tell me that uh, you shouldn't be breathing. I was uh, very sick with COVID. Ended up with with uh, uh, pericardial effusion, which is <clears throat> fluid in the sack of my heart. Your heart is in a sack, and my it was filled with fluid. And when he looked at my stats and he told me, he said, uh, you, uh, with, with what I see, it's a miracle that you're breathing. So I consider this a, a blessing to be here. I, I'm, I feel blessed with my health and the strength to be able to be here this evening. Also want to recognize the uh, congregation here and your sacrifice that you are making with several from your midst being in various places, other places of the world. With Elvin Fishers and their family being in Paraguay, we appreciate their contribution and work there. By the way, I'm, I'm probably most of you, maybe all of you are aware that I do serve on the uh, AMA board and I am the, uh, the field rep for, or the country rep for Kenya and also the recruiter for people there. So if you see my name come up on your caller IDs, it's okay, just take the call. Um, it may not always be because of that, but uh, it may be that also. So uh, just uh, feel free to take the call, it's okay. <clears throat> but we have, we have benefited a lot with Elvin's presence in, in Paraguay and, and regret that they're actually uh, planning to return. We, uh, we regret that. Maybe you have someone uh, to send instead. But they have been a tremendous blessing and asset, the work there. We have uh, Alan Peaches in Kenya and Martha Stolzfus also in Kenya and also has uh, proven to be a very, uh, they've been effective in their ministry and in their labors. And we thank you for being willing to sacrifice them and uh, allow them to go. <clears throat> God bless you as a congregation for that. Maybe a little bit about myself. <clears throat> I know that For some of you, you probably know my Freundschaft, and maybe not, but uh, I'm Jonas Beiler and Wanda. We live in McConnellsville, Ohio. I have a cabinet shop there. Five children, one married son. Our daughter Melody teaches school at Withville, Virginia. Janelle is here in ben Penn Valley as head cook, and our son Eugene is presently at Faith Mission, and our Son Michael is married and lives in our community, works in the cabinet shop with me. And Jana is, I guess at this point, she's the only one at home. She's with us here this evening also. We, uh, <clears throat> my, 
my parents are, are, are both gone, and my wife's parents are both gone. My parents was Aaron and Mary Byler, and my wife's is Jonas and Bina Miller. So that might give you a little bit of an idea who we are. We're glad to be here. Um, it's probably been a year and some months, maybe a year and a half, I'm not sure, when the first contact was made by Brother Daniel. I, I don't remember for sure. And then when I had, as I remember our conversations being uh, since that via email, mostly via email, and in thinking about uh, coming here, if I remember correctly, he said I'm to just preach what the Lord lays in my heart, and I want to do that this weekend. I, uh, uh, in the beginning of the week when he emailed me, he said uh, he trusts that the messages are coming together for me, and I replied and I said yes, I feel that the Lord is directing in, in this, and also requested prayer. And that is certainly my interest and desire as we are here these few days. Pray that God can move and direct in our hearts, that truth can be delivered in a way that can be understood and that can minister to the needs. God knows our needs. And while we are in, in our human flesh, and there are things sometimes that we battle with in our hearts, I don't know your hearts. I don't know what God is speaking to you. I don't know what you're going through. But as we are in the journey of life, God has a plan and a purpose, and we have needs. We have needs. Don't know if those song sheets have been printed out. Are they uh, available? I uh, maybe the ushers could uh, pass those out, or maybe they have. I'd like to have a copy up here. I don't have. I surrendered my copy to be copied. But I'd like to sing this song together, maybe uh, somewhat as a theme song. Uh, I hope that this song is familiar enough that we don't, that I don't need to stand up here and sing a solo. But I'd ask about that and they said, oh yeah, this song is familiar. But there's a message in this song that touches our hearts and I trust that we can sing this with fervor and with sincerity. So shall we sing this? Let's all stand as we sing this song together. <clears throat> I don't have a pitch pipe here with me. I forgot to bring that part along, so we're going to try here. <clears throat> or maybe there's someone here that is prepared to that can start it. Is there anyone? All right, we'll try. <clears throat> deeper than the sin stains, deeper yet I know flows the blood of Jesus, casting out this foe, reaching in with power, 
Washing out the soul, pouring in this life to sanctify the whole. Deeper, deeper, deeper than for casting off the chains, whiter than the snow, sanctified in the flow. Deeper, nearer, deeper than the sin, richer, fuller, casting off the chains, Whiter than the snow, whiter than the driven snow, is the heart that sanctified, washed in the crimson flow, deeper than the For his holiness, living in my soul, fulfilling righteousness. Deeper, deeper, deeper than the sin stains, richer, fuller, casting out the chains, whiter than the snow. Sanctified in the flow, deeper than the sin, and the sin stains richer, fuller, casting off the chains, whiter than the snow, whiter than the driven snow. Is a heart that's sanctified, washed in the crimson flow, leaving all to follow him who paid the price, shedding his own blood to set me free from vice, counting all but lost for rapturous delight, found in serving Jesus in his power and might. Deeper, deeper, deeper than the sin stains, richer, fuller, Casting off the chains, whiter than, than the snow, sanctified in the flow. Deeper, deeper, deeper than the sin stains, richer, fuller, casting off the chains, whiter than the snow, 
whiter than the driven snow is the heart that sanctified washed in the crimson flow perfect present cleansing as my heart abides letting him control we in the swelling tide resting in his bosom casting on him dreading not the future whether bright or dim deeper 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 than the sin stains richer fuller casting off the chains whiter than the snow sanctified in the flow deeper 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 than the sin stains richer fuller casting off the chains whiter than the snow Thank you for that. You may be seated. <clears throat> I invite your attention to 1 Samuel 17. I'm going to use a portion of this scripture as a springboard for the message this evening. And as I think about this message tonight, there's a phrase that is brought out in, in verse 9, 29 that I want to highlight as, uh, for this message, although the title of the message this evening is Treasures. But I hope that you can follow and think with me as we consider this message, and especially this phrase that is found in verse 29 of 1 Samuel 17. That verse says, And David said, What have I done, now done? Is there not a cause? That word, that phrase where it says, is there not a cause? What was David referencing as he thought about this statement? I like to read, uh, uh, pack back up a little bit here in this portion of scripture. The setting here is where David was asked by his father Jesse to take provisions to his brothers who were out with Saul's army in battle against the Philistines. Now the Philistines had a man by the name of Goliath, who was a huge man. He was a tall man. He was a warrior. He was a warrior from his youth, the Bible says. And he was a man that found himself in the forefront challenging the army of Israel. From verse 8 through 11 it says, And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? 
Am not I a Philistine, and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you, and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then will we, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Going down a few verses from verse 26. It says, And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, what shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. And Eliab, his eldest brother, David's eldest brother, heard what when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David said, What have I done? What have I now done? Is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? The New Living Translation puts it this way. I was only asking a question. The Amplified Bible puts it, was it not a harmless question? This question... Is there not a cause reflects back to David's statement or question in verse 26 where he says, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? Now as I looked at this and I studied this portion of scripture, I wondered what David, why did you ask a question like that? Why, when you saw that there was a battle going on, and it looks like <clears throat> he had self-interest, it could appear that way at least, what's going to be done to the man who is going to conquer this Goliath and take away the reproach from Israel? In other words, what are the rewards for killing the Philistine? Maybe we also tend to do the same as we face Goliath in our Christian life. Maybe we find ourselves sometimes asking the same question. What is the reward or is there no use? 
if David had it in his heart to conquer Goliath, why was he asking what the reward will be? Let me ask, let's ask ourselves the question. Why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Why do you choose Christianity? Do we also ask the question, well, what is the reward? What is the final outcome of this? Maybe. Maybe we do. I believe David was a man after God's heart. And I think he was probably evaluating this situation and this battle. He heard the defiance of Goliath when he said, give me a man. He heard the defiance of, of Goliath when he said, I defy the armies of the living God. And in David's spirit and heart, he couldn't stand that defiance. And so he asked the question, what is the reward for the one who will stand up to this man? What is our reward as a Christian to stand up against the Goliaths in our lives? Is there a benefit? Is there a reward when we fight the battle? David had a holy boldness because his focus and his life was, were centered around God. His focus and his life was centered around the victory. His focus was centered around to bring down the reproach from Israel. To have the reproach taken away from Israel. He had, a, he had a focus and an interest and a heart to see that this man is conquered. And when all Israel would flee, I mean, Goliath did this for 40 days, the scripture says. And every time it just intimidated the crowd. And they wanted to recant, they wanted to move back. And David said, God will not have this. I will be a man who's going to conquer this Goliath. David was pinpointing the fact that individual Christians have to choose whether or not they will champion the cause they have chosen to identify themselves with. And for me, that's a challenge, and I hope it can be for all of us as we think about facing our Christian life and our battles, that we are engaged because we want to conquer. We want to, we want to experience victory. We want to experience the power of God and see the reproach taken away. I believe that was what David's heart was. 
Will we take a stand for the Lord and get into the spiritual battle of winning the lost? Will we talk about loving Jesus, but we do nothing about it? <clears throat> Many believers punch their spiritual time clocks or time cards on Sunday, and for the rest of the week, they do nothing for the Lord. We are challenged to have a daily walk with Jesus Christ, praying, reading his word, witnessing, and fellowshipping with other Christians. So we could ask ourselves the question, what is my reward for being a Christian? Well, we could say we inherit heaven. Or we could say it brings peace with God. In 1 Corinthians 15, 19, it says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So part of the reward of choosing Christianity and of being a born-again believer is eternal life. I'd like for you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. <clears throat> I'm going to read from verses, begin re reading in verse 19 through 23. Here it says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye, if therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. Now we learn from this scripture that there are heavenly treasures and there are earthly treasures. I would venture to say that everyone here this evening is laying up heavenly treasures or you're laying up earthly treasures. We are facing Goliaths in our life. Where is our treasure? Are we willing to fight for in the battle? So all of us have a treasure. But what is important to us, and what is important to us, is to identify what that treasure is. Now sometimes we don't necessarily like to 
identify our treasures. Now the word treasure means a deposit, for example, wealth, or we could say an investment. Now the word heart means the thoughts or feelings or the mind. So where you deposit or where you put your investment is where your thoughts or your feelings go. And I believe according to the scripture here it says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be. So that's simply saying that our heart follows our treasure. Is that right? Sometimes we hear the statement and we hear people say that all that matters is that my heart is right with God. But you know, there's a lot more to the Christian life than having that expression. Where is the treasure? Because your heart is going to follow your treasure. So what you treasure and what you hold as dear to your life, your heart is going to go right toward that. I believe the things we really like is where our heart will go. That is why it's important to think seriously and soberly about our treasure. <clears throat> where our focus is, that's where our thoughts and our feelings, our heart goes. When David saw the defiance of Goliath, his focus was toward conquer, toward victory, toward removing the reproach from Israel. If your focus is on styles and fashions, entertainment, technology, sports, money, riches, your car, your truck, then your thoughts and feelings and your heart is going to follow that. A person will spend more money, time, and energy in pursuing those things than the things of the kingdom. That is an identification of the treasure of the heart. If your focus is on spiritual things, such as kingdom work, evangelism, souls of man, missions, welfare of our neighbors, helping others, eternal values, Bible reading, prayer, that is where your thoughts are engaged and that is where your mind travels and it's almost like a second nature to your life. You immediately your mind travels towards those things. Your heart is going to follow that.
a person will not neglect his devotional and prayer life. When the work schedule gets tight and busy, rather than neglecting your Bible reading and prayer, you'll get up a few minutes earlier and have it. When your focus is where it needs to be, we will not find ourselves neglecting our spiritual life. And I know those things are easy to, to happen and, and come by. But our focus needs to be on eternal values. Where is our treasure? What about activities that we find ourselves engaged in? What takes precedence? Story is told of a group of people that were together discussing spiritual matters. There was one among the group that had nothing to say. However, when the con conversation shifted to hunting or sports, he all of a sudden became alive and had a lot to say. I don't know, does that say anything about the treasure of his heart? Maybe? Likely? But I think for us as Christian people, not that it's wrong to talk about hunting and those kinds of interests that we may have, but it is a, a, a bit concerning when spiritual conversations are happening and there's no interest, and then you become alive when it comes to things like that. Does that speak about a, someone's treasure, maybe? I think it does. What really excites us indicates something about our treasure. How a person spends his money reveals something about his treasure. The places we gravitate toward say something about our values. We must know and identify our treasure because your heart will follow your treasure. This is kind of an interesting paradox. To have a right treasure, you must have a right heart. But where your treasure is, your heart will follow. Your heart will also go there. Now here in this scripture, right after he talks about the treasure of our heart, he says in verse 22, the light of the body is the eye. Now we see with our eyes. The eye is the gate that gives entrance to the mind or heart of man. Probably one of the first things that influences our treasure is our eyes, is what we see. Genesis 3, verse 4 to 8. Here it says, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes will be open, and ye shall be as gods, 
knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Where we place our focus, somehow, that is the direction we tend to go. Where we place our focus, somehow that is the direction we tend to go. Ephesians 1, 18 and 19 says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. The eyes of our understanding being enlightened. So if the eye is the window into our life, what we behold and what we look at and what we gravitate toward, finally our heart will follow that. <clears throat> now can you tell me which of these cards is the largest? One on the left. Would you agree? Which one of those is the largest? They're the same size. Now what you saw there was an optical illusion. Optical illusions, Jesus even speaks about optical illusions. And I believe that's why it's so important that what we see with our eyes, we see it correctly. So if I would say to you that your eyes fooled you, and I would promise to you that I can remove your eye, one of your eyes, and I would give you a million dollars and put a glass eye in there, it would look the same as your good eye, but you'd be short one eye. Would you do it for a million dollars? No. What about if I would say that I can remove both of your eyes and I'll give you $20 million. The only disadvantage you're going to have is you can't see. But your eyes are going to look the same. Would you do it? No. But that's the value that we have on what we see. But if your eye isn't seeing correctly, the Bible says here that how dark is that darkness if you're not seeing correctly? If the light that be in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? I believe 
that in this scripture, in Matthew chapter 6, our eyes have a way to dictate our treasure. And if we're not willing to allow God's corrective lenses upon our eyes, it will mislead our treasure. And where our treasure is, our heart will follow that. Now this scripture also says that we should have a single eye. Now does that mean that we should just look out of one eye? It says, therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Now who of us doesn't want to be full of light? And so we need to have a single eye, so let's get rid of one eye, so we have just one eye. Is that what this scripture means? No. It means our focus needs to be singular. We don't, we don't just look in the, in the things of the church or the things of spiritual things and also incorporate the things of the world and try to bring these things together. That's a mixed message. That gives blurred vision. That gives, that gives wrong perspective. Matthew 5, verses 20, 27 through 30, it says, Ye have heard that it, has, that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her, already in his heart. And if thy eye offend thee, plug it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now the context of this scripture is talking about adultery. And did you notice the two physical things of the body it uses, the eye and the hand. And so what I want to say with this is simply that the two guilty culprits for adultery is the eyes and the hand. And if our eyes and our hands are corrupted in their nature, in which we are born with a sinful nature, but if they have not been redefined or converted or born again, we're not born again, our eyes and our hands will lead our heart. But if we give it to the Lord Jesus, it is also the very two things that God uses to enlarge his kingdom. 
if we have singleness of heart, singleness of eye, and we move forward with purpose, isn't that beautiful? They're the two culprits for sin and wrongdoing, but they're also the two things that if we embrace truth, if we embrace what is right, they're also the two things that expand kingdom work. They're also the two things that will help us to invest treasures in heaven. If thy eye be single, does not mean you should only have one eye, but it means that you should have one focus. The light of the body, the word light here means illuminator or candle. The eye means sight or vision. So I believe in essence it's simply saying that the light, the illuminator, and the eye is the vision. So that what we see is the illuminator of our life. And what you see, are you seeing correctly? The eye is, is a gate that gives entrance to the mind or heart that even, and even the body of man. It has been said, the eye is a window into the physical body. We hear expressions like, he looks guilty. Or many people are or many people who are guilty cannot look you straight in the eye. The scripture talks about the redness of the eye, means talking about drunkenness. Or sometimes we hear the statement, he has such a far away look. Or he has a stony look. Or when someone is experiencing sickness, we say he doesn't look good out of his eyes. Or when someone is having a lot of stress, we can tell it by the eyes. We don't look at a person's feet or his hands to try to make a, a judgment as to where he is. And many times, you can even sometimes know when there is a struggling person among us because of his, how he looks. I, I, I can't really explain all of those things, but I think you know what I mean. Our eye is a window to our life. Times we see a bride and a groom, they come to their wedding and we say, oh, she is just beaming out of her eyes. Well, what do you see when you see somebody beaming out of their eyes? What do you see? Is the eyes wide open? Or is it, well, what do you see? But, you know, we use those kinds of expressions. Or sometimes we say, well, he has such a troubled look. What do you see? What do you see?
<clears throat> Somehow through the expression of the eye, we know whether we are communicating or connecting to another person. Proverbs 23, verse 7 says, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. How do you like to be in conversation with someone and his eyes are just darting? Or you're trying to, you're making conversation and, and he's looking way somewhere else and you thought you were making a point, but you're not sure if he's with you or where he's at. Eyes are important. Focus is important. What about double vision? When we see double, we become confused. We have a difficult time to discern what is right. Double vision is, is, is miserable. I, I'm not, I haven't suffered much of that, but I, I know of people who have. And when they look at something and you see two things, you see two faces instead of one, or you're driving down the road and you're not quite sure which is your path because you might see three lanes or four lanes and you're not quite sure where you are or which one you're on. Where is our eyes? What, what are we looking at? <clears throat> Singleness of the eye and heart means that a person sets his attention upon the Lord Jesus for the purpose of doing his will. Acts 2 verse 46 says, And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Now the singleness of heart here has the same connotation as the singleness of an eye as written here in, in uh, Matthew. A singleness of heart. In Ephesians 6 verse 5, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Let's not be double visioners. Let's not look, try to see things double. An evil eye is one that focuses upon anything that is not of God. A healthy eye or heart is like a healthy eye. It grasps the true treasure, the treasure in heaven. Now the eye regulates the motion of the body. Sometimes in school events, competition events, they might set something up where you lay a two-by-four or, or something or a log, and they, they uh, challenge the students to reach the other side without tumbling off the log. Or you may have seen some of these folks in, in competition where they 
they spin a log in water, you know, and, and, and they're, they're running this thing and running, making it go faster and faster and faster. But you know, the secret to success to that is where your focus is. If you try to run the beam, walk across the beam, maybe with rushing water going underneath, what do you do if you want to reach the other side without falling into the creek? You set your gaze on that point and you just walk across. But the moment you set your gaze away from that, what happens? You fall. Peter is a prime example of that. When Jesus came walking on the water, Peter said, Lord, if this is you, then bid me to come. And Jesus said, well, come. And as long as Peter kept his eyes on Jesus, he could walk the water. But the scripture says when he looked around and he saw the waves boisterous, he sank. And that's exactly what happens if our gaze moves elsewhere than Christ. We will fall and sink. So if you want to know where your treasure is, examine what you like to see and where your gaze goes. We need kingdom-focused living. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? The word light here signifies the mind or the principles of the soul. Folks, we can't accomplish the right things in our own strength. The scripture says that our own righteousness is as filthy rags. Our focus needs to be on the Lord Jesus. Proverbs 30, verse 12, it says, There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. Uncontrolled desire darkens the mind, obscures the view, and brings in a dreadful and gloomy night in the soul. Uncontrolled desire darkens the mind, obscures the view, and brings in a dreadful and gloomy night in our souls. Second Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, Examine yourself. Whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves. Where is, where are my interests? Where do I go to? How controlled, how much control does God have of my life? But let every, in Galatians 6, 
It also says, For if a man thinketh himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall, be, shall he have rejoicing in, in himself alone and not in another's, and not in another. I remember as a young boy growing up that when we would, when dad would hitch up a horse to our, to our carriage and he would put all those that, uh, you know, what do you call it, the reins and all that stuff on the horse. But one thing as a little boy, I remember these little blinders that the horse had, you know, and well, what was the purpose of those blinders? It was to help control the peripheral vision of the horse, as I understand it. Because the peripheral vision allows the horse to see anything from the sides that might be obscuring or scary or causing him to do things that are not very controlled. And so there was blinders set so that it would put his gaze forward and would to God that we could use blinders in a spiritual sense that would focus our gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ and that our peripheral vision of what the world has to offer would be obscured lest that it should come in and corrupt our soul. Second Corinthians 3.18 But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Open here means unveiled. Face, that means our countenance, our aspect or our appearance. So we could read that, but we all, with unveiled countenance or appearance, behold as in a glass the glory of the Lord. My encouragement here this evening is that we set our focus on the Lord Jesus. As David did when he saw Goliath, and his defiance. And he saw the fear of the children of Israel who were afraid to face the battle. But David focused on the victory. And I believe this evening that our victory is in the Lord Jesus. And if we have troubled hearts or there's things going on within our lives, the victory is in Jesus. It's not just think this can go away when we need Christ. We need to put our focus on Jesus. Let's kneel for prayer.